And this girl said to me, oh, yeah, um, if I had a heart attack, I would totally become a vegan. And I still remember us sitting at the coffee shop and her saying that. And it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I thought, but a lot of people, when they have a heart attack, drop dead. So maybe you wouldn't get a chance <laughs> to become a vegan if your first symptom is sudden death. As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices, and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey, Posse. It's me, your host, Chrissy Benson. As I record this, we're already approaching the end of the first quarter of 2024, and we've had some guests who have blown my mind. If you'd like to suggest a guest for the Vegan Posse, or you're interested in sharing your own vegan story, reach out to me through my website, christinemelaniebenson.com. And at that same online location, you can also find out about my novel, Marrying Myself, the anti-romance romance with a vegan twist, which was featured in Veg News Magazine and on Chef AJ Live. You can even order a signed, personalized copy of the book. And don't forget to check out the special Marrying Myself playlist with songs from independent artists in Boston, Massachusetts, where Marrying Myself is set and where I used to live. Finally, if you love being part of the vegan posse, please take a moment to like this podcast, subscribe, and share it with your friends. The bottom line is you are not alone. You've got a posse. Now... On to our episode with vegan psychiatrist, Dr. Adam Woods. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes vegan psychiatrist, Dr. Adam Woods. Adam is a private practice family psychiatrist in the Iowa City area, meaning that he sees all ages and all diagnoses. He began his plant-based journey in 2017 after a lifetime of struggling with his weight and watching his family suffer from lifestyle-related diseases. He strives to promote a healthy plant-based diet and lifestyle over medication wherever possible and engages in evolutionary psychology-based therapy as promulgated by his mentor and friend and my own, Dr. Doug Lyle. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm not a general fan of or believer in pharmaceutical interventions for psychological issues, but in this interview, you'll be hearing a different perspective which is not edited in the slightest, because I wanted to give Adam, as someone in the psychiatry business and seeing patients on a daily basis, an opportunity to candidly express his opinions, regardless of what I personally think. Enjoy, and let me know what you think of what was, for me, a really interesting conversation. Dr. Woods, welcome to the Vegan Posse. Are you yeah, ready thanks. for the ride of your life? I am. Thanks so much for having me. You interviewed two of my friends, so I'm excited to be on the show. We've probably interviewed more of your friends. I, I have a feeling um, you may not be aware of everybody <laughs> that we've interviewed, but um, yeah, we're developing quite a posse, which has been really, really fun. Very good. So 
You are, are you from Iowa originally? That's where you live currently, right? I am, yes. I'm the seventh generation of my family uh, born in Iowa. My daughter is the eighth generation of the Woods family. Uh, so we've been in Iowa since before it was a state. And uh, although I left in my younger years uh, to do other things, I uh, came back to Iowa to do my psychiatry residency. And uh, I've sort of stayed ever since. And so this is probably where I'll be in perpetuity. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Wow. Wow. And Iowa, I've never been to Iowa, but I have an impression of it as farm country. Yeah. So I uh, I like Iowa. People that aren't from Iowa or from the Midwest tend to think of us as a flyover state. Uh, the, you know, in terms of uh, of plant-based stuff, the, uh, the YouTuber, Mike the Vegan, who's a friend of mine, he's here in Iowa. And uh, he'd be the first to point out to you that there's a lot of stuff like CAFOs. Uh, so when you're driving around, there's a lot of animal agriculture. People think of Iowa as corn. Uh, there's a lot of hog production. So there's a lot of pork uh, in Iowa. And then, you know, the CAFOs of chickens and things like that. Our state has become a very red state, whereas the state that I grew up in was much more purple, uh, you know, went for Clinton uh, and then Bush and then Obama each twice. Uh, but since then, it's become very red. And in a state that now has become quite so red, uh, the idea of anything that is even construed as criticism of the agricultural industry is not very welcome. So uh, but it's a, I love being here. I think it's a lovely place to uh, to raise your family, to grow up. You know, there's a lot of famous people from Iowa that people don't uh, often think about. I think another thing uh, that's really nice, and we can get into this if you want to talk about it, but, you know, from the psychology and psychiatry side, we really see this, this social media phenomenon of bringing out the worst in people. You know, when you have this anonymity, people can just be really nasty. And I will say that uh, my wife lives in a small town, well, she's from a small town. And uh, when you get out into the the very red counties, people are just as friendly as you would imagine, you know, and so if you go to a restaurant or you go to, you know, we went to the uh, the little Santa house and then the, there was another community event in the little town where my wife is from this last weekend. And I know the vast majority of people are uh, sort of on the right, different political views than I would probably have. Uh, but everyone is very friendly and they'll say hello and shake your hand and Merry Christmas and all this kind of thing. So I think it's a, it's a great place to be from, but if you're coming in to visit, there, there's not that much to see outside of the bigger cities, unless what you want to do is something a little more outdoorsy. Gotcha. Gotcha. So growing up in that part of the world, how and why did you end up going vegan? Yeah, my plant-based journey, um, I'll try not to bore everybody into a coma, but so I come from a family of very heavy people. And uh, everybody on my father's side of the family, with the exception of my sister, has diabetes. And uh, I just was really raised with this idea that it's what's in the genes. On my mom's side of the family, which is the wood side, uh, very long-lived people, farm people, who if my great-grandfather who died at 104 uh, or my grandfather who died at 94 were alive still, they would both tell you, you know, we grew up eating everything on the farm and uh, all kinds of meat and eggs and so forth. And, you know, health really has to do with moving your body and um, living off the land, that kind of stuff. 
Uh, not that I think, especially my grandfather was living off the land particularly, but anyway, mm -hmm. you know, but I, uh, from a fairly young age, I was uh, definitely an obese child and I got picked on a lot for that. It's something, uh, by the way, I'll just say is, uh, as a general piece that anything I'm talking about here, I often talk with my own patients about. So, uh, you know, these are the kind of things I sort of tell my patients, you know, I was picked on a lot as a child uh, for being obese, uh, told directly in high school after working up the courage to ask this particular girl out that uh, nobody would ever love me because I was fat. And so I went into college and decided by that point, I have enough maturity that I was going to try to figure out this weight thing. Uh, my undergraduate degree is actually in acting, uh, believe it or not. And so I wanted to try to get leading roles. I was tired of being cast as the old man or the character actor, or the funny best friend. I wanted to play leading roles. And so I sort of did a deep dive into what I could find. You have to remember the internet was very rudimentary back then. And so um, I actually don't want to say his name because he's still around, but I got tied into a low carb guru that was very anti plant-based, uh, very anti uh, anything other than carbs equal sugar. And he has a degree from MIT and he would say in his lectures and when I would email him or I talked to him on the phone, cause he wasn't like it was Atkins. Like he wasn't that famous. He was sort of up and coming at that point. So I had direct access to him. And he would say things like, you know, if you eat tofu, you have to eat four pounds of tofu to get the same amount of amino acids uh, as you would in much less steak. And, you know, you're not going to be healthy. And so I will say that I didn't have any kind of agenda. One of the things that um, I know better than to engage online, but I just recently engaged online under a YouTube video because and we'll talk about this. I want to mark the occasion, even though you're going to release this later. Today, we're recording. It's December 5th, which is the day that Dr. Greger's new book comes out, How Not to Age. It was delivered to my audiobook uh, queue this morning. And so as soon as I'm done with my current one, I can't wait. So I was busy defending uh, Dr. Greger and Dr. Campbell and Dr. Esselstyn and Dr. McDougall on this YouTube video, which I know better than to do that. But somebody uh, came back at me and said, well, I just believe you should do the opposite of what Dr. Greger says. And I said, so you mean eat no vegetables, eat no fruit, don't sleep, don't exercise. I mean, you know, the, here's this caricature, right? And the comeback from this person whose name was not like my YouTube name is Adam Woods, MD, right? This person's name was something more elusive. And I was trying to get credentials out of this person and saying, listen, maybe you have a point. What's your, where's your research? Where, what's your degree? Maybe you are a doctor. Maybe you're a PhD researcher. Can you engage me in a conversation? And they came back with, uh, Dr. Greger has, uh, basically he's biased, right? And here's the thing I will say outright. I've never met Dr. Greger. I would love to meet Dr. Greger. He actually will be at a veg fest, not that far from me in a few months. I'm going to try to get over there. But even just meeting him uh, in line will not be as cool as if anybody listening uh, knows Dr. Greger, I would love to uh, meet Dr. Greger. That would be super cool. Or just talk to him on the phone. That would be, uh, would be a great honor. But here's the thing I firmly believe. I do not believe that Dr. Greger has an agenda. Maybe I'm wrong. I've never met the man. But he's so into research. And uh, Dr. Lyle, Doug Lyle, who is my mentor, who I know you have some ties with as well, who you've interviewed on the program. 
I believe the same thing about Doug, the same thing about Dr. Goldhammer. I don't think they're being, and this is what I said to the guy on YouTube. What do you think Dr. Greger is being paid under the table by big spinach? Like who do you, what's his conflict of interest? I firmly believe that if there were legitimate research that was replicated, was not paid for by some weird industry tie that Dr. Greger, Dr. Campbell, Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Lyle, Dr. McDougall, and, and probably even some other ones that we all respect would tell us. Uh, because the goal is not, obviously this is called the vegan posse. We're talking about um, you know the ethics. I hope we get into the ethics part of it and all that. But like Dr. Greger says in How Not to Die, I want to say the same thing as a plant-based doctor, which is I have great respect and love for the animals and the ecology and so forth. First and foremost, I'm a physician. So I'm seeking truth, what I call a capital T truth. And that has come to mean something else uh, since the era of the previous president. But um, I, what I mean by that is I want to know what the evidence says and so forth. So that's what I was doing back in college. I was looking for evidence. So what happened is like what happens to everybody. I went on a low carb diet and I lost weight almost instantly. You know, I lost a lot of water and then um, I was cutting out all kinds of processed garbage. So yes, I wasn't eating whole grains and fruit like I should have been, but I also wasn't eating a lot of processed junk food, you know? And so I lost weight, but it was nearly impossible to stay on it long-term. And everything you'll hear when people criticize low-carb diets happened to me. Um, I was, I, I felt sick a lot of the time. You know, uh, I kind of had that weird like keto breath thing going on, but I was losing weight. And as a young man, uh, I was, I started to get some bigger roles. Uh, some girls at the college started to pay attention to me. You know, I was getting reinforced. And so, you know, I would fall off the wagon and do like a carb weekend, almost like, like a cheat weekend, right? And so then I would eat stuff. And even by doing that, I was still able to lose some weight because I was so obese, right? I had a lot of different, uh, not a lot of different, I had a lot of room to, to go, right? So it was very reinforcing. Wait, were you? I was, are, are huh? you talking, how overweight were you? Are you, are we was, talking 40 pounds? Was, are we talking a hundred pounds? Yeah, I was, I was well over a hundred pounds overweight. Wow. Um, I think that, I think the highest ever weighed in was 294. Wow. And uh, I'm wow. about five foot 10. Uh -huh. And so um, my healthy weight is somewhere between about 150 and 170. Wow. You know, and wow. so I, and so wow. I was able through just sheer nerve uh, for those of your listeners who watch Anything that Doug does, especially if he's on Chef AJ's program, HCNC, so the hyper conscientious nutcase in the house, um, because of sheer nerve, I was able to just gut my way through this low carb stuff. And, and except for I'd fall off the wagon and then I'd feel guilty, right? Just like you always hear people say, it was my willpower is not strong enough, right? It, it, it's definitely me. It's nothing to do with the environment that I'm living in. I just, I just would grind and grind and grind. And for about 10 years, you know, I was low carb and I would fall off the wagon for a time. And then I would just get back on it and just grind and grind and grind. And uh, I was just, I was miserable for a lot of it, but I was getting the results that I thought I wanted. What's interesting is that in hindsight, I never got anywhere near my healthy weight because I would stall out. I was eating so many calories. I was so hungry, you know, even though I could eat unlimited low carb food, 
I never got anywhere near my weight and I, I was young, so I never really got a lot of cholesterol draws or anything like that. Uh, but I'm sure it was terrible, uh, whatever it was. And so anyway, so we have 10 to years, long time. Yeah, I, I was yeah. picturing six months or something, but 10 no, years no, living that way. Wow. Uh, no, I was, I was hardcore because it was the only thing that I knew how to do. And this, this diet guru who then besides him, he had me read protein power by, by, uh, Dan and Mary Eads or whoever, maybe that's not his, his name, but it was, it was the two, those two doctors Eads and then Atkins and uh, so forth. And my father uh, and his wife were talking about like, oh yeah, I remember Atkins from the seventies. We should do that too. And my father had diabetes. And so his endocrinologist was telling him, uh, oh yeah, you cut all your carbs and you know, dad lost a lot of weight too, but he was never where he really needed to be. And so it was, it was all I knew you know, counting calories won't work. Well, I never did an experiment, you know, of uh, eating plant. I never heard of, of eating plant-based. Like that wasn't anything I knew about. So we, we have to cut through a lot of my life, all right? So many, 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 many years of my life, being a doctor is my third career. So let's get all the way into medical school, okay? So all the way to medical school. Um, I was at Duke uh, in North Carolina. So just like you hear all plant-based doctors say, I was at a top five medical school. So Duke was number four when I was at Duke. We got zero minutes of required nutrition. There was an optional lunch class in our first year. Most people didn't stay. They left. Um, I remember staying. Uh, but, you know, I, I'd gotten into medical school. And when I was in medical school, so I was able to have my weight fluctuate. And between medical school, uh, between my acting career and being in medical school, I was in the military. So I was able to starve myself basically long enough to get my weight down to make my military stuff. But anyway, in medical school, I started running 5Ks and 10Ks and stuff like that for fun. And I read the book Born to Run by, by, uh, by Christopher McDougall, which anybody in the running space, you've definitely heard of that book and you've probably read it. So in that book, they talk about Scott Jurek, right? So Scott Jurek is this badass runner, you know, and he won the Western States 100, you know, seven times in a row. And, you know, he was just this just unstoppable force in ultra running and he's a vegan. So I started thinking, okay, um, what would it look like to be vegetarian? And one of my really good friends, and she's still one of my really good friends, um, she and her husband were medical school classmates of mine. She was a vegetarian. And so I started picking her brain and she is, I don't know if she still is, I assume, but um, she is ovo-lacto uh, vegetarian. And so she was busy telling me about, you know, sort of like how, how do you do it? Because I didn't know how to construct a meal, right? Meat is the meal. So meat or eggs and dairy is the meal. How do I, how do, I do this? And so in medical school, I decided I would become a vegetarian because uh, that way I would run, I would run better because if it worked for Scott Jurek, it would work for me. And I was amazed how easy it was to become a vegetarian. I thought it was going to be very, very difficult and it was super duper easy. And I don't know that I saw many benefits, uh, but I, I remember feeling like it was a good thing to do. This is sort of the beginning of me being interested in ethics. And I started thinking about the ethical side of it. And so uh, not long after, I was probably vegetarian for six months when I decided I was going to try to be a vegan. I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I knew it meant don't eat eggs and dairy, but I, I had planned very, very poorly. This is something I love sharing with my patients because if you don't plan well, 
it's probably not going to go particularly well. So I made it six days as a vegan. Um, I decided, so I, I still remember, uh, I remember uh, going out for ice cream the night before, and that was going to be the last dairy I ever ate. We went to Cold Stone. And I remember, and then I had, uh, I'd given up my, my milk. I had almond milk in the fridge. And I thought, well, I was living on veggie burgers and um, things like that. And I thought, well, this is going to be easy. So the next day I go to eat my veggie burgers and I look at the label and there, there's, there's egg and cheese in the veggie burger. And I basically ate salads for a week because I didn't have anything else to eat. I didn't know what else to eat. I didn't know any vegans. And so uh, six days later, uh, I, I gave up and I ate a huge pizza. So I, I, <laughs> I totally I totally didn't make it. And I decided like a lot of people that it was just too hard. Forget it. I'm just going to be a vegetarian. And, uh, and I was a vegetarian then for several years until I got into residency. And I actually remember the night I broke being a vegetarian after all those years. I was on call in the middle of the night. So it was two or three in the morning and we'd been on, there were codes all night. My intern year was a combo of family medicine and psychiatry. So it was on a family medicine rotation. And I mean, I was just exhausted. There were codes all night and I was up and running around the hospital. And I, I went to the cafeteria. I finally got a break. There was literally one sandwich in the whole cafeteria and it was a turkey bacon club. And I grabbed that sandwich and I thought, you know what? I am so hungry and I'm getting lightheaded. I didn't bring food. Once again, poor preparation. Um, I'm going to eat this sandwich. And I did. And that kind of threw me off. So for those of your listeners that are hardcore, they're probably stopped listening by now because it's like, this guy's not inspiring. But but anyway, I, I try this to- This happened to all of us, I think. Yeah, I mean, we've all lapsed. We've all thought it's too hard. I can't do yeah. it. I know I thought that when I first went vegan. Like, oh, and, I, I gave it a shot. I gave it a real try, yeah. try. I fought the good fight. And, you know, this is just too much. So I think I think people will relate to that. So what well, happened after you ate the sandwich? Yeah, nothing nothing bad. I mean, it, it led to maybe a couple of years of me just trying to be a vegetarian, uh, even though I'd eaten a meat sandwich and- um, you know, but I, like you're saying, I try to keep it real with my patients and uh, and say, you know, uh, this is why I, I kind of lean towards the McDougal kind of style of, you know, uh, there's you know, there's a sort of a little bit on the margin and have to be quite as hardcore as some of the things. So then um, I don't know, maybe uh, once I got out of intern year, it was either second or third year, I decided I'm going to try this vegan thing again. So once again, you can see this hunger that I have for looking for the information. Well, the and so was, I'm just curious, just to backtrack yeah. a tiny bit, where did you come up with the idea of going vegan? Because you said you didn't know any other vegans. Um, where did you even come across the concept? Or did Scott you figure Jurek, it out Scott on Jurek. your own? <laughs> so so the, the only reason I even knew what it was was because Scott Jurek from that book. So okay, okay. So it's purely based on that. Got yeah. it. Yeah. And, 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 and again, uh, if I had the kind of internet we have now with a billion YouTube videos and all that, I think I would have, I know I would have done much, much better. So, so in, in second or third year residency, I found the book 80-10-10, which for, if anyone doesn't know what that is, that's the raw vegan where you eat everything raw. And I'm trying to think of what his name was, but there was a really well-known ultra runner named Michael something. I think it was Michael's anyway. And he, he'd gotten third place at Leadville or something like that. And he's totally raw. And he's like, oh, I eat like a dozen oranges at a sitting. And this is, I read that book and it's like, this is the ultimate, this is the way humans were supposed to eat. You're supposed to eat raw. 
Like it's uh, it, it's going to be, this is the way to do it. And so I read the book cover to cover. There's research side. I was like, this is it. Okay. So now this is why I failed, right? Because I'm going to plan this time. I'm going to go vegan. I made it 12 days. So I increased by a few days, but I was starving. I still remember um, eating as much fruit as I could. And I, my body was screaming for salt. You know, I was just dying. And I, I said to a nurse friend of mine, like, I can't do it. Like, I, I know it's supposed to be healthy. I'm supposed to be this frugivore. You know, I just, I just can't do it. And, uh, and so I, I wound up not doing it again and just stopping and saying, well, being a vegan is obviously just not for me, you know, so I'll just keep being a vegetarian. So I was a vegetarian for, for a while. And uh, then we're going to fast forward to several more years into about 2017. So in 2017, I'd gotten really heavy again. We had had a baby. I was married by that point. We'd had a baby. And, um, you know, just I was at a residency. I was working in private practice. Uh, you know, drug reps come and they bring high calorie food. And I think uh, seeing my daughter uh, as a as a baby and then as a as a young, you know, one year old and a toddler, I started thinking, you know, I my weight had ballooned back up into about the mid 200. So I was maybe 250. Uh, maybe even as high as 260, something like that. And I decided, you know what? By then, uh, I started finding uh, things on the internet. And I, I still remember, this is actually a few years before that, I'd watched Forks Over Knives. And I love Forks Over Knives. I still think it's one of the best documentaries ever made. And um, I remember watching it. And I, I had gone on a couple of dates with this girl who was getting her PhD in psychology and we were talking and she was she was a lot more granola-ish than I was. And she had seen that movie and it talked about like reversing heart disease. And I said to her, I mean, they didn't teach me that in medical school. And I'm in residency, not one minute of nutrition in residency. I mean, not even close. And I was thinking, wow, can we really diverse heart disease? I mean, that's, that's not what I'm being taught. And this girl said to me, oh yeah, um, if I had a heart attack, I would totally become a vegan. And I still remember us sitting at the coffee shop and her saying that, and it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I thought, but a lot of people, when they have a heart attack, drop dead. So maybe you wouldn't get a chance <laughs> to become a vegan if, I don't know what the percentage is, but some <laughs> enormous percentage, your first symptom is sudden death. So that's not really what we want to, you know, uh, right. Uh, it's hard to reverse with, right? sudden death. Yeah. You, you know, so, so then, then at some point, uh, in 2017 with where my daughter was, was a little bit bigger, I started looking on the internet and that's when I found, uh, Mike, the vegan, uh, and I found Dr. Gregor and I started, uh, you know, really kind of digging into not just the science, but then what would it take to actually transition and plan ahead and meal prep and some of these things. And so, you know, to, to not, I mean, th this is already the longest story in history, you know, but to try to get into it, I, I found a, uh, I, I'd gotten really interested in weightlifting uh, and I had done some triathlon stuff. And even though I was big, I wasn't too bad as a triathlete. It wasn't like I was winning, but I was doing pretty well. But I, I, I noticed that there was, um, there was this, this transformational bodybuilding show uh, that was going to be in Austin, Texas. And uh, you, you won you know, you won the contest by sort of losing the most weight. And I kind of was revisiting this plant-based space. And so um, I actually, uh, I hired a, a filmmaker and we filmed it as a documentary. 
And so, uh, you know, I, I, I got uh, connected with Jeff Palmer, who runs uh, Clean Machine. And, um, you know, I, I kind of did this documentary following me for most of a year. I lost over 120 pounds. Wow. Uh, and, and I won the show in Austin. And I still have all the footage. Unfortunately, the movie, the movie fizzled as soon as we got back from Austin. And I don't want to get into it because he's still a real person living in Cedar Rapids. But the director decided that he was going to flake out on us and he walked off the project. And so we never really did pursue it. But, um, you know, I, so then I, I went full on plant based, whole food plant based with lifting weights, with a trainer and all this stuff. And in the meantime, was interviewing kind of like you're doing right now. I was interviewing people like Pam Popper, you know, and Derek Treesize and Jeff Palmer and all these people in the weightlifting and the plant-based space. We did a number of interviews with Mike. That's how I met Mike. Mike was speaking at a VegFest in Des Moines. And it turns out that I, I, we knew some people in common. So we became friends. And uh, that was sort of my big transformation. And so not only feeling better myself, but seeing my my blood markers improve. And I, I finally made it to a healthy weight and all of that. Uh, that was really my big transition. And then to be honest, since then, you know, I've refined it and refined it, you know, and really I found Doug, Doug, meeting Doug Lyle really changed my life because, you know, my, my weight would still go up and down a little bit because to quote Doug, right. I'd get caught in the pleasure trap. And so not until I found out about that and high caloric and low caloric density foods, did I really feel like I dialed in not only my own plant-based journey, but helping my patients uh, to really embrace the plant-based lifestyle. So super long story, but there you go. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, for so few of us, is it quick and easy and, you know, chronological without some bumps in the road? So that makes so much sense. Thanks for sharing, sharing all of those ups and downs with us. I'm curious, is your family vegan and how do you manage it within your household? Yeah, not at all. So um, my, my wife is from this, this town that to try to describe it is, is difficult. But my wife is from Fairfield, Iowa, and Fairfield, Iowa is where the transcendental meditation movement is headquartered in America. So I did not know that. I just got back from a TM retreat. In fact, there, there I did not know that. Wow. There you go. So, so back in the seventies, I think it was the seventies, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, uh, the head of, you know, the founder of TM, uh, they bought this college in this little Iowa town and um, they're still there. And so Maharishi University is still there. And so Lori is from Fairfield. She was actually born to what they call townies, but then she adopted the meditator, what they call the ruse, uh, the rue lifestyle. And so Lori will eat anything. So I'm, if, if anybody cooks, it's me, right? Lori will eat anything that I make. She'll usually put cheese on it, uh, anything I make. Uh, but uh, so Lori is certainly into eating vegetarian or vegan if I make it. Uh, but that's not the way that that she lives her life. And uh, then my daughter uh, is a picky eater. And so uh, what I decided early on, anybody who has kids is going to understand and hopefully forgive me. Uh, I certainly encourage as much plant-based eating as I can. But sometimes with kids, people ask me, what do you feed your daughter? And the answer is what she'll eat. But um, I had to laugh watching uh, my daughter when she was little. This is when she was first you know, the first year of life, I used to call her my little vegan. And this is before I was plant-based because when I watched the human animal, she wanted to eat fruits and vegetables. 
And I remember my wife cutting up hot dogs and trying to get her to eat them. And, and she would look at it like, what the hell is this? You know, this is not food recognized by an animal, uh, you know, by the human animal at that, that young age, right? It's like um, Ed Winters, Earthling Ed, another shout out, one of my favorite people who I'd love to meet and talk to. He says in one of his talks, if you give a young child a bunny rabbit and a strawberry, what's it going to play with and what's it going to eat? In fact, if it ripped apart the rabbit and started to eat it, we would worry about that child, wouldn't we? Right. So um, so I watched my daughter, but I decided, you know, especially since my wife is not plant based, that I wasn't going to be super preachy around my family, but I was going to set a strong example. And I knew it was going to pay off. I knew someday. So in the last about six months, my daughter, now a second grader, has started saying to me things like, you know, when we watch those shows on TV, it makes me really sad that animals kill other animals. And I'll say to her, you're absolutely right, honey. And she's now coming to the realization that chicken is an animal. And we have these two amazing little companion animals, these two little guinea pigs that we love more than anything. And without trying to be too preachy or judgy, I'll say things like, you know, in the wild, Rosie and Rebecca are guinea pigs. They would be in danger from a fox or, a, a, you know, a hawk or something like that. And just like we wouldn't want somebody to eat and, you know, to kill and eat Rosie and Rebecca. I mean, you know, uh, this is why daddy doesn't eat me, right? Because we don't, we, we, we don't want to be doing uh, that to other animals as well. And so you can see uh, the penny will drop for a little bit and then she'll kind of go about her life. But, you know, I've chosen not to really browbeat her. I know some, some parents would, but, um, and so what have I learned? It's been enough years now that it doesn't bother me anymore. You know, and so, uh, if if we go out to a restaurant and I eat and I order the, the vegetarian entree and, you know, Lori and Mackenzie have whatever, it doesn't bother me. The smell doesn't bother me, um, you know, but uh, what I've learned in the house, you know, so uh, you have to work on your environment harder than yourself. So I have a crisper drawer in the refrigerator that that's where I put my stuff. And then, um, and not just plant-based stuff, but junk food. Junk food is a big thing. So the women in my life love chocolate. I love chocolate too, but uh, I try to stay away as best, as best I can from pleasure trap foods. So I have some, I have a cupboard that is just my cupboard. Uh, and, and so then um, that's where I keep my stuff. And so I don't even look in their, their cupboards and I don't, that, that way I'm not tempted and I tell patients that all the time, they'll go, well, I can't because my husband would never do whatever, or my kids have to have Fruit Loops around or whatever it is. And I say, listen, find your own space, you know, have your own space uh, off to the side where you can just have your stuff. And you say to your family, listen, you can eat my food if you want, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be partaking on your side. And it, it's worked out really well uh, in my family to do it that way. And you have just the one daughter? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's so interesting how kids, how kids get it, you know, they really get it and they're curious and that's great that you're, you know, sharing with her just some of the information that I'm sure you, you would have liked to have when you were her age. Yes. I often think to myself and, uh, you know, this is the part where I'll, I'll get a little more serious. You know, my father, my father uh, died when I was in medical school long before I knew any of this information. And he'd been suffering with type two diabetes for a long time. And I firmly believe 
that if I would have known this information, uh, that I could have gotten my dad, maybe not to go full plant-based. Although I think not having to do as much insulin or any insulin, I I think I think I could have probably convinced him to at least done it for a while. Maybe I could have gotten to True North uh, for a week or two. But you know, um, sort of like Dr. Gregor says, you know, he shares stuff because of his grandma. You know, I um, I've tried to do YouTube videos and uh, try to have an online presence. I don't really have the the kind of uh, presence I wish I wish I did a bigger platform, which is why I really appreciate you having me on in a place like this. But you know, my dad suffered and died because of a foodborne illness, because of something that he could have probably completely prevented, or at least really, uh, I mean, ultimately pancreatic cancer took him, but there's no way that having diabetes for that long didn't play in there. Uh, there's a strong correlation with uh, diabetes and pancreatic cancer. And so um, I'd, I'd love to get the word out as much as I could, whether it would be working with people like Dr. Gregor, Dr. Barnard, or just if I have to do it one patient at a time in my own clinic, I will. But if I can help other people's mothers, fathers, grandmothers, you know, grandfathers, whoever it is, um, we don't need to be suffering and dying from the vast majority of the number one, two, three, four, five, you know, killers of people. I mean, and, and the, and the data is out there. That's what drives me so crazy as a doctor is that, you know, there's so much noise, but then you get those people online. I was talking about like, why well, do the opposite of what Dr. Gregor says that that's, I mean, these are people that want to keep their head in the sand. I had to stop listening to Joe Rogan, uh, even though I was a big fan of Joe Rogan. And I still listen when he has on like alien people, you know, <laughs> but, but ultimately Joe Rogan has decided he doesn't want to hear the information. You know, part of it is because he's sponsored by meat companies and so forth. But, you know, if he really cared and he'll say, well, I have on blah, blah, I really care about this. Then he would have on Dr. Gregor or he would have on Dr. Garth Davis. But, you know, I mean, just the other day he was on with Elon Musk and they were eating uh, sardine and pineapple pizza, which it had like the grossest audio ever. It was them going <laughs> and they were both on there going, oh, carbs are so amazing. Like, you know, so this is why it's why you can't eat carbs because carbs are so bad. I promise you that pizza was at least 80, if not 85% fat. Exactly. You know, People always talk about the carbs and I'm thinking they're not eating plain carbs. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> they're, mean, they're and eating even, carbs and fat. <laughs> and, 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 and even when Joe had the vegan debate, I mean, I, I have I have a lot of respect for Dr. Furman. You know, Dr. Furman is way more famous than I'll ever be. But Dr. Furman is is not Dr. Greger, you know, and, and so, you know, if, if that, that, that kind of stuff is, is hard for me because Joe Rogan has, I don't even know, probably 50 million people that he can easily reach, but, um, you know, where people are, are, are dying and suffering unnecessarily. And if that's not the case, like the haters online want to say, then good. I want to see your studies. Exactly. And I want, you know, exactly. So, yeah. Which is where I started when I said, <laughs> right. you know, I, I'm right. 100% sure that, I mean, I know Doug. Doug, I know for sure. Doug would tell us, I am 99% sure because I know Jen Hawk, right? Um, I, I'm 99% sure that Dr. Gregor would tell us too. Um, you know, and, and so if we're just trying to build a healthier, uh, a healthier uh, human and then a healthier planet and uh, better for the animals as well. 
uh, I'm going to steal this again from Earthling Ed, from Ed Winters, but if it weren't so cruel, it would almost be funny that because of the torture and death of all these animals, it's making people tortured and sick and dying too. The irony, the karma, if I can use that word, is it's so mind-blowing. And this is what made me excited and angry all at the same time when I had worked so hard to get into medical school and pre-med, none of this. Top five medical school, none of this. Um, you know, really good, solid four-year residency program, none of this. Zero. Uh, you know, and, and even, even in the medical schools that do better with it, that have more, it's, um, it's really too bad. So programs like yours, programs like AJ's and, and Doug and Jen's Beat Your Genes and Gregor's books and his tours and all the things. So, you know, I wish somebody like Joe Rogan would would do what he really says and have on somebody like Dr. Gregor to really lay it out there, not so much with the idea of debating. This is the one thing that I'm not interested in is, is the classic debate. Well, I'm going to do the Alex Jones thing and throw out a million facts and blah, 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 blah. You know, and are you going to, are you going to counter all the million things that I said? No, to me, it isn't a matter of debate. It's, it's, we're trying to find the healthiest path and talking head debates, the CNN Fox News style debate is not what I want to be doing and not what I think we should be doing. How is that helpful? Yeah, so, anyway. agreed. And in fact, I remember a while back, years back, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, who author of the China study and featured in the film Forks Over Knives, he was offered an opportunity to debate the head of the Wesley Price Foundation, which is essentially a front group for <laughs> the animal agriculture industry. And he declined. He said, I'm not going to dignify <laughs> their position you know, and couching it in terms of us both having valid perspectives and just batting ideas back and forth. He's like, it's, they're not equal playing fields. They're not equally valid positions with, with two people, you know, yeah. sharing, sharing ideas and Joe Rogan. I mean, don't get me started on Joe Rogan. I love, I love so much about him and that I do believe he's a genuine seeker. You know, he's curious about life and he's, he's pushing himself and he's, exploring interesting ideas but just number one like you mentioned his sphere of influence is massive of course and all it takes is just an offhand remark from him you know <laughs> with it i call it bro science you know just I remember one time on one of his shows someone mentioned the china study and he said oh oh the china study that's been debunked Hasn't it, you know, Jamie, Jamie, that's his research assistant. Jamie, hasn't it been debunked? Yeah, it's been debunked. You know, <laughs> in one fell swoop, <laughs> he dismisses, you know, the most comprehensive nutritional analysis right. to date. Right. <laughs> and right. there was another, another episode where he had on two of his carnivorous friends talking about the benefits of their way of eating and heavy on the meat, heavy on the carbs, heavy or not heavy on the carbs, heavy on the fats. Um, and all kinds of, you know, weird practices like drinking blood, you know, weird, weird stuff. And then it came out during the interview that all three of them in the studio that day, every single one, Joe Rogan included, had sleep apnea. 
<laughs> every single yeah. one of them they all had high high cholesterol but they claim that's a good thing high cholesterol is a good thing and right. then they all had sleep apnea and i'm not big on social media but i did you know tweet something saying you know you might have a little more credibility if every single one of you didn't have sleep yeah apnea. yeah so well, i mean so yeah. so yeah. many of those of those, those carnivore videos i mean mike the vegan my buddy has done videos on that where it, their their labs are terrible um, you know, T. Colin Campbell should win a Nobel Prize uh, for his work uh, on the China study number two. And then um, and I'll tell you what where I always tell patients where Joe Rogan finally lost me. And I was a big fan. And, you know, I would um, I would just sort of grit my teeth when he would, you know, say things like that and not have any experts on, you know, he and some you know guy made fun of Patrick Baboumian and wouldn't have him on. But here's where Joe lost me. There's two things that Joe Rogan said that now, like I say, it's, it's only if he's talking to, I mean, it, I, I went down to almost none. Number one, Joe Rogan will say Prozac causes school shootings. I've heard him say it multiple times. And as if my job isn't hard enough, as if the stigma of mental health is not bad enough to have Joe Rogan with no credentials say to 50 to 100 million people, Prozac causes school shootings. I've been a doctor for 15 years. I've given Prozac to thousands of people. You know how many school shootings my patients have done? Zero, okay? And Joe Rogan will, will, will say, well, if you look at those guys that shot the schools, you know, they, uh, you know they, they were all on things like Prozac, right? So you think they might've been disturbed and before they shot up the school, somebody noticed they were disturbed and maybe tried to help them by, you know, giving them uh, some medicine. And this is the guy who, if you point out the research, will say, well, correlation doesn't equal causation. You know, the fact that all these blue zones, these plant based people are so amazing. That's correlation. It's not causation. Right. But being on Prozac caused the school shootings. Right. OK, that's number one. Number two. If you take Adderall, it will make you do things you don't want to do. All right. And he'll say, I had this buddy and he, he was a slob and he was on Adderall. And all of a sudden he loved cleaning his apartment. So so if, if, if there's something you hate doing, you should get on Adderall and it'll make you do anything you don't want to do. And I just go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I went to school for over a decade. Like I am infinitely more qualified than Joe Rogan. But nobody cares what I have to say. But yet, I mean, with a with a casual comment like that, now I mean, we're we're in the midst of a global Adderall shortage. We have been since July of last year. All right, as if it wasn't hard enough. And well, so tell then, me, yeah, I'm curious because I don't know like a that. lot about. I I know some adults who abused Adderall. You know, like yeah. recovering addicts. So I'm aware of that side of it. But but tell me the other side of the story because I I well, tend to be you know just. Um, not very the pharmaceutical roots don't right. tend to interest me but i'm right. you know, certainly right. <laughs> curious about your perspective yeah so there's um, i'm gonna i'm gonna answer your question but i'm gonna answer it in a roundabout way because this this now introduces a new topic for you to timestamp if you want right so um so you and i have this this mutual friend mentor uh in in, in dr doug lyle um who has changed my life in in uncountable ways all right. But the, the one place where Doug and I will disagree a little bit is with psychiatric medicine. Doug is, is very much on the throw them all the way train mostly. Although I have noticed 
in the last year. I've heard him say a little bit, well, you know, some people that are psychotic, maybe we, yeah, yeah, okay. Which is what Doug and I have been talking about for years, okay? So you can't blanket say all psychiatric medicine is crap. We should just throw it all away. That's baby with the bathwater. Um, but here's the thing where I definitely agree. And, and this is where I tell all my patients this and I tell all your listeners this, which is medication should always be last, okay? So when it comes to mental health stuff, what I spend all my time doing is going over what I call my five things, all right? There are five things, there's actually six for depression. There are five things that have been shown to be way more helpful than medicine for everything in psychiatry and every study ever done not paid for by a drug company. And they are therapy, sleep, diet, exercise, meditation, and for uh, depression, volunteering, okay? so. So one of the things, so we need to set that up. So for me, here's what I tell people. And this is what I've said to Doug. You, so Doug will say things like this. Depression is normal. Anxiety is normal. Yes, that's true. So is pain. All right. So if we're, if somebody, you know, breaks their arm, we could say, well, pain is normal. We're not going to give you a painkiller. All right. Now, I think that's inordinately cruel because we have the technology, but if you came to me as your doctor and you said, my arm is broken and I went, oh, great, here, take this pain pill. You'll never feel that arm ever again. That's terrible advice, right? I should lose my license if that's my entire plan. And that's what 99% of psychiatry really is to throw my own profession under the bus. That's what Doug is railing against. If your whole plan is medicine, that's no different than the broken arm and you say, here, take this pain pill. But while I was giving you the real treatment for a broken arm, so, so surgery, casting, physical therapy, wouldn't I then give you a pain pill, help you, and then at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later, we, we, we pull back the medicine and your arm is better, okay? That's psychiatric medicine. So my medicines in the office, they don't cure anything. And anybody who thinks they do is wrong. So the whole chemical imbalance thing is incorrect. And we have lots of studies that show that. But what it can do is it can help lift the symptoms a little bit, enough to do what? To get you engaging in therapy, sleep, diet, exercise, meditation, and in the case of depression, volunteering. So what does that ultimately do? All those lifestyle things will change the cost-benefit analysis, which if anybody has interacted with Doug and Jen, you hear them talk about the cost-benefit analysis, okay? So what we're trying to do and what I beg people to do on a daily basis over and over and over again in my office is what can we adjust within our lifestyle? Because the number one complaint I get from adults is I hate my job. And the number two complaint I get is I hate my spouse. And the number one complaint I get from kids is I hate school. And the number two complaint from kids is I hate my parents. I don't have a pill for that. There is no, I hate my job, I hate my spouse, I hate my school, I hate my parents' pill. It does not exist, okay? Because that's the cost-benefit analysis, right? So I'm begging people constantly, what can we adjust in your life? And this is where Doug, and then later Jen, really came into helping me do therapy and work with people. And I am the least druggy psychiatrist you will ever meet, all right? I'm always looking to get people off their medicines if I can. Like I'm slow to use the prescription pad. It's not zero, but it's certainly not when I cover for my colleagues or I you know, get a second opinion. 
and I see the kind of stuff people are on, those are people that were trained like I was in this biological model that simply is not true. Okay. So um, all of that sets the stage for what you actually asked. All right. And you asked about Adderall. Okay. So what, what somebody like Joe Rogan is claiming, which is that if you take uh, a stimulant, it's going to make you do something that you don't want to do. That's not right because remember, and again, we've had to talk in the, the brief, uh, the brief sort of breakdown here. Whereas any of your listeners who haven't listened to Doug or Jen, uh, I would recommend that they do that because you know the, the the personality is is genetic. This is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt with all the twin studies. So we're definitely not going to alter their genetics. Uh, you know that's not going to happen. But what we're trying to do is is can we alter the cost benefit analysis a little bit? It's not going to make you like doing things you don't want to do. But with people that have ADHD, and, and ADHD is not a disease, all right? You know, it, it isn't like, like you have Tay-Sachs or something like that. It's a personality characteristic. And so in, in some people's personality, when they're not in the sort of the natural environments, it would be great if we could be in all the time, but society has set us up to be working in offices and doing things that are not natural to the human species. Does this sound very Doug Lyle to you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So sometimes the stimulant medicines in low doses taken as needed, not all the time, you know, what they can do is that they, they, they can help, they can help alter the cost benefit analysis a little bit as we're also changing our lifestyle. So again, that's really the key. So it's not going to make you do something you don't want to do, but if you're, if you're using the stimulant, you know, and it's, it's helping you to sort of get a few more things done, then the cost benefit can shift. So let me just let me just spitball here off the top of my head. Let's say that, that what you didn't like doing was cleaning your apartment, but um, because because of the way your personality is and, and you, you've said yes to too many things, which what you should do is say no to some things. You know, but then then if, if you get more things done that you with air quotes, for those of you that are just listening, have to get done, it shifts the cost benefit to then some things that you might have otherwise done. All right. That so that that entire long process gets us into how something like Adderall or Ritalin or one of those things may help, but it's not our long-term solution. It should not be. Okay. And so that's the that's the nuance when it comes to psychiatric medicine. Um, I always use the broken arm or broken leg sort of metaphor, and I've been trying to pitch Doug and then later Jen for years uh, that I would like to like to work with them and that I could be the the other voice because both of them are and and neither one of them are trained in the in the same way but um you know uh i i it has been interesting to hear doug soften a little bit because some of it you can say i know that doug does the full robert plowman plowman's book is amazing but i mean some people that are violently psychotic as an example you know the antipsychotic drugs help level people out and so forth so you don't want to get rid of all of it but but definitely definitely we in the medical field lean way too heavily on prescription drugs. Absolutely. And I guess my concern in the scenario that you described with the person needing to clean, clean her house, for instance, is that if people find, you know, some sort of shortcut or some sort sort of artificial boost that they'll become dependent on that. And number two is that I don't trust the motives of pharmaceutical companies. So I'm not confident that these medications are safe, that they're even effective for what they say they've been prescribed for, what they're 
prescribed for? What What's your take on that aspect? Yeah, and I think you always have to keep what you just said in mind um, in terms of of the the motivation of drug companies. Mostly, what I use and what most people use are generic, and so I don't know exactly what the cost structure is on the back end when a medicine is generic, but I know that it's not nearly as profit driven. So Vyvanse, Liz Dexamphetamine just went generic a few months ago. And that drug company is really sad about that. I can tell you that. So once if you preferentially choose generic medicines, I don't think that the cost structure is the same. But drug reps, and you know, in my new office, we don't have drug reps, but in the in the other one we did, you know, the drug reps don't come around and want us to prescribe generic medicines, right? They want us to prescribe the new ones, and they have, um, you know, preferred uh, preferred patient coupons for those kind of things too. And uh, it's it's very much the, the the drug company way. I mean, that's so that you always have to keep an eye out for that. In terms of they don't do what they say they're going to do. That's where I think you have to look at clinical experience. And uh, Doug and I disagree about this, but you know, I've really seen the medicines turn people's lives around in the short term, right? And that's that's why stress. We're always, always, always trying to focus on the lifestyle pieces. All right, I say it till I'm blue in the face, twenty times a day with patients. Okay, if but if all... someone can take a pill. That's a lot easier than changing a lifestyle. Right, so right. I would, I would well, see right, people right. wanting so, to keep just taking the pill. Right. So if if the pill would get you all the way there, I can I can see that. And so here's what I tell people, because uh, a lot of times people will say I don't have time for therapy or I don't have time to exercise. Whatever. So I'll say, listen, we're leaving the vast majority of treatment on the table. If you look at the research, the medicine is going to do about maybe two percent of the lifting. So it's not nothing. It's not zero. All right. But it, it, it's going to do very, very little. So if we leave 95, 96, 97% of the treatment on the table, we're kidding ourselves. All right. We're trying to lift a 10 pound weight using the, our, our little finger. Like we're, we're, we're handicapping ourselves tremendously by not doing that. So, but in, in 15 years, I have definitely seen it where you know, the medicine seemed to make things better. And that was it. That's so rare, though. So I, I you know, we, we're always trying to sell people on on, you know, we want to make all these other changes, right. And so, uh, so yes, it's, it's a piece of it. It's the last piece of it. It's picking up the last few percentages. But if it were as easy as, you know, let's, let's take the pill and everything's great, then you're absolutely right. But that's just not what we see. And in terms of clinical efficacy, um, you know, I, there's there's just no way, uh, you know, that that I've been doing this for this long and I've seen psychotic people be not psychotic, manic people be not manic. You know, um, there, there's no way that it's doing nothing, you know, but again, you know, it's it's it should be helping us enough to get to where we can do some of those non-medicinal things. That's the constant refrain. But yes, yeah. you always want to be looking at cost structure and side effects. And this is why I have a job, right? If it were as easy as I feel depressed, push button number D on my computer and a pill pops out. I mean, you know, I mean, chat GPT is going to replace my job, not as soon as radiology and surgery and some of those, because to 
to understand the human psyche and the human mind, it's just, it, it's so much more complicated, but absolutely, I agree with you. We always have to be keeping our eyes on patient safety, um, other other things like drug company motivations, absolutely. And it's it's so tricky. I, I do feel, and you you can give me your take on this, but I feel like there's a distinction between, you know, the severe hardcore psychiatric issues like schizophrenia or bipolar um, and just, you know, quote unquote, normal anxiety or depression Absolutely. that are an understandable response to life. Absolutely. Medicine. Yes. And that's a very important message. Okay. So that's why I think we have to be careful making broad statements like, you know, we, we, we definitely don't want psychiatric medicine, right? So now you're absolutely right in, in the case of we, and we wind up running into a language problem. So this is one of my little soapboxes. And I wrote an article years ago that I've tried to get published several times and I can't get it published. But one of the problems is we run into language. Now, my parents were mental health care workers. So I grew up listening to this. Uh, and I think it's funny, I wound up in mental health care. But so when I was a kid, as an example, it was very common for somebody as an insult to call somebody a retard, all right? Now, I was never allowed to do that, uh, not because my parents would have hit me, it was worse. If I would have said that, I would have gotten a 30 minute lecture on people with mental retardation and what that means and so forth. Now, my parents were correct. We shouldn't be using that language, all right? But the language of, of mental health gets gets incorporated into the vernacular. So terms like idiot and moron and retardation, things like that get, get co-opted by vernacular and we have to keep changing the terms, all right? And so the, the problem with doing that is what's called normalization, right? So if um, when I first met who's now my wife, she would say, I clean the house once a week. I'm so OCD. And I would say to her, please don't say that. Please don't say that in front of me. Because I've had people try to kill themselves because their OCD is so bad, right? And and like, you know, so somebody speeds past you on the interstate and you go, that person's a maniac, you know? And uh, some some girl rejects some guy at a bar and he goes, oh, she must be, she must be bipolar or borderline, right? Because you're such a catch, right? You know, the fact she didn't want to like snog with you in the bar, it, she's obviously crazy. But when people say things, even just that, well, that's crazy. That's whatever else. So depression is an emotion. Anxiety is an emotion. All right. And it's it's not incorrect to use the language in different ways. Right. But the problem is, is that one sounds like the other, but you don't notice uh, you don't notice it because people use that language, all right? So this past Saturday, although they were never going to win, the Iowa Hawkeye football team got smashed by the Michigan Wolverines. They shut them out, all right? Uh, they were never going to win. But uh, we were all hoping they'd score at least once. But all right. So on Sunday morning, I promise you, zero people woke up and went to church or went to brunch and said, you know what? Ah. The Hawkeyes lost. I have pancreatic cancer today. Nobody said, oh, the Hawkeyes lost. I've got a little bit of AIDS today. Nobody said that. And if you did say that, you would be canceled because it, you know uh, that language is inflammatory, right? People die of breast cancer. And so, but I promise you people said, I feel depressed, you know? And, and so depression is an emotion. If your grandma dies, 
it's not wrong to say, I feel depressed. But what you're not saying is, I have this crushing depression, you know, that, that, that keeps me in bed for days and weeks and so forth. But the problem is then when somebody has a more serious depression, they then will say to somebody, well, I am depressed. And the person with that normalization will go, well, big deal. I was depressed on Sunday when the Hawkeyes lost. So get over it. Suck it up. You know, it's just not a big deal. What do you Every, Everyone's anxious. Everyone's depressed. Everyone's a little bit OCD. Everyone's a little bit whatever. I mean, bipolar is the most misdiagnosed diagnosis in all of mental health. In fact, really? this, huh. oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, I would say at least 90% of the people I've seen in my career that, that say to me, I have bipolar, don't have bipolar. It's huh. so common that if somebody walks into my office and says, I have bipolar, my first thought is, okay, so you don't have bipolar, but <laughs> what's going on? Now, I had, a professor, I had a professor in residency when I said that, say to me, no, Adam, that's very cynical. And, and he, was, he was probably right. But I mean, people don't understand what is a bipolarity. And so again, everyone's a psychiatrist. You'll notice rarely do people self-diagnose cancer or epilepsy or AIDS or something like that. You know, but everybody with with Google and so forth, everyone, everyone is diagnosing everybody. I mean, most people come to my office and, and I, I will send you for testing, especially if you think you have ADHD. I'm going to send you for neuropsych testing. But most people are like, well, you know, my brother has it, so I have it. Or, you know, I took this three question thing on I have ADHD.com. I made that up. So nobody looked that up. Um, but and, and they're just they're so determined. TikTok. So I had a high school kid and uh, I must have offended her because I haven't seen her since then. I had a high school kid who said to me that she has multiple personality disorder. Okay. Now, a lot of doctors don't believe that DID is what it's actually called. The DID is real. And so I said to her, it's interesting. Why do you think that? Because a lot of people, you know, don't really think it's a thing. And she scoffed at me and she said, you know, what the hell do you know? And it's like, well, I mean, I've only been a doctor for 15 years and went to medical school. And she said, well, you know, TikTok has all this stuff on it. TikTok said that 60% of the population has multiple personalities. So I said, whoa, 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 60%. I said, how many people are in your high school? She said, I don't know, about maybe 2,000. I said, 2,000. So 1,200 people in your high school have multiple personality disorder. There are 3 million people in the state of Iowa. That means about 2 million of them, right? Have, that's, that would be a global epidemic. That would not be something you found in a TikTok video, right? Every, the, the Surgeon General would be talking about this every minute of every day. Yeah, so, what makes it tricky, like you said, is the language piece, because we hear aspects of these disorders that we relate to, that we can understand and identify with. Yes. For instance, I'm trained in a type of therapy called internal family systems therapy mm -hmm. or IFS yep. therapy, yep. which is parts work, which essentially does approach the human psyche as if we have multiple personalities. You know, we, we have these different parts within us that are like people and have their different agendas and have their different motivations. So I can see where she's coming from in that respect, because we all have different roles that we play, different parts that we play. I mean, you were, you 
were an actor yeah. um, in your first profession. So yeah. of course, you know, all, all the world's a stage. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, of course, we all have these aspects to ourselves, but yeah, yeah another term is, that I hear is narcissism, you know, that yeah, was, yeah, and I, I've absolutely. been guilty of that too. <laughs> right. Maybe, yeah. Maybe everybody, genuine ones, but everybody throws that around, you know, whether it's famous people, uh, you know, or so forth. Oh, you know, they're, they're narcissistic and, um, you know, but a, we really shouldn't try to diagnose people unless we've actually examined them, you know, and B, when you throw around psych terms, you got to be careful because one, they can be sticky and two, you get this normalization. So I was interviewed on Friday by a local high school paper about seasonal affective disorder, which is not what it's called anymore. Um, but I was looking at my DSM. What's it called now? <laughs> well, so it's, 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 it's major depressive disorder with seasonal features. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and and so I mean, you know, DSM five uh, took away Asperger's, it took away ADD, it took away all the schizophrenia. It's just schizophrenia now. Um, and so, uh, but reading that, I mean, this this is where I wish I'd have had Doug with me because we'd have been laughing like hyenas because it 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 pathologizes things that are not pathologies. It's like you either sleep a little more or sleep a little less. You either right. eat a little more, or eat a little less. And so here's what I tell people. Because you make an excellent point, which is, well, there are features of this. So there's a joke, right? The sickest person in the world is a freshman full is a, is a freshman psychology major, right? Because he or she gets the DSM and is like, oh my God, I've got all this. But here's what I always tell people: if you had a Great Dane and I gave you a book about a Chihuahua, you'd start reading it and you'd go, Oh my God, it has four legs and a tail and a wet nose and a wet tongue, and it says woof woof and it likes kibble. It likes to be walked. I don't have a Great Dane. I have a Chihuahua. Well, no, it's a it's a book about a dog, right? So the DSM or any of those things, they're a book about a human. So of course, when you read these things, you're gonna see elements in there, you know. And so that's why it's so difficult. This line of what is disease, you know, and what is disorder, whereas in um, in anything else, right? So if if I had a broken arm, right, I could take an x-ray and it doesn't matter whether I don't believe I have a broken arm. Maybe I don't believe in broken arms completely. Maybe my religion tells me that broken arms are fake. There's no such thing as a broken arm. So says my religion. But the problem is I take a picture of your arm. You have a broken arm. Whether you think you have it or not, you have a broken arm. The same thing is true for things that can be detected by blood levels, right? So if you know if you're fasting blood sugar twice is over a certain number you have diabetes whether you think you have it or not you have it the same is not true with mental health so we have these criteria but it also has to be affecting your day-to-day -day life so if you meet the criteria but it's not affecting your day-to-day -day life according to the American Psychiatric Association you don't have that disorder right? So then we get in these very sort of fine lines. So what I always tell patients, and this sounds a little flippant, is that I don't care as much what language we use, all right? Because what language we're using is interesting to whoever told you you have whatever. So if you tell me you have a bipolarity, or you tell me you have ADHD, or you tell me you have borderline personality, or I want to know what symptoms are you suffering with? So every patient who I see in the beginning, after I ask them, you know, what pharmacy do you like? And, you know, how many kids do you have? And those things I say to them, you know, you know, tell me, 
tell me how you're doing and about your symptoms. And, and people will go, well, I have bipolar. I'll, I'll go, wait, wait, wait. Tell me what that means. What does that mean to you? Right. And so, and, and ultimately what's interesting, and this, this is true in the therapy world as well, right. Is that we treat a lot of things the same way. Right. So when does OCD not, it's so like, we think about, about a bell curve, right? So if you're over this line, it's OCD, but if you're right here on the other side, you now have anxiety with obsessive features. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fine. Call it whatever you want. We're going to treat it the same way. I still want you to go to therapy. I still want you to sleep, exercise, diet, meditation, you know, um, the, all the trauma-based therapies. Maybe, maybe it's not PTSD. Maybe it's really, really close, but we're going to treat it the same way. And so ultimately we get, we get hung up on this language and I, I just don't think it's all that helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I remember I was working with a counselor years ago and he was a lovely, lovely guy. And, you know, essentially we were working on, on my life you know, <laughs> trying to get my life um, the way, the way it would be, you know, one that I love living. And he said to me at a certain point, he's like, I think you might, I think you might have depression. I think you might be depressed. And I just remember saying to him at the time, yeah, regardless, maybe you want to put that word on it or not, but isn't the solution still the same? Like, like working on my life and, you know, just, just yeah. trying to improve things. It was, it was clear in that case, I think it was just a different, a different perspective on, you know, what depression even, even means, you know, viewing it as like, like, um, a disease that can just blow in and, you know, strike you like, like a bacterium or a virus, or, you know, is it a, a response to life circumstances that are producing this emotion? But yeah, yeah, it's very, very interesting. So, well, thank you for just breaking all those, you know, various facets down with us and sharing your approach with us. Um, I've got just a couple more questions for you before we wrap up. Um, yeah, there's so much to talk about. It's such a such a field that's so rife with so many, you know, mixed meanings and mixed motives and perverse incentives, as as Doug Lyle and Jen Hawk like to phrase it. Um, but I'm curious, what are the major psychiatric issues that families have today, like especially kids? And are there any that keep you personally up at night? Let's see. That's a question I wasn't anticipating. Let me uh, <laughs> let me see. It's if a I big can... one, so you can just give us what comes to mind. Yeah, um, the pandemic was was interesting uh, because people often say to me, "Oh, I'll bet your business would just explode it during the pandemic." I bet people just freaked out all over the place. The interesting thing is that some people did, and some people got way way better. Um, I had some patients who I'd never seen be healthier. And part of it was uh, people that were socially anxious or had agoraphobia, they now got to stay in the house. And in fact, you were a good American if you stayed in the house, right? And so those people did great. And so I, I have seen some of the kids have issues sort of reintegrating into the schools, even though it's been a few years. You know, they were home for a while and uh, a lot of the kids kind of liked that. And it gave them a lot more flexibility and freedom. I don't know how to say this exactly. So I'm going to try to stumble my way through this. But something I've seen a lot is that I don't, I see a lot of kids that have a hard time making it through the entire school day. And that seems to really be a big feature. 
here in the Iowa City school system, they actually have a dual enrollment partial homeschool program. We used it with my daughter in first grade. Now she's full time now, but in first grade, she she was one of the one of the kids. I mean, she she couldn't she couldn't do it. And mm-hmm. so they have this beautiful, amazing program in the in the ICCSD where the, and the homeschool place has its own building. Like they have their own library and their own teachers and, and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll help you. You can get teaching from them. You can do it in your home. And I just, I see more and more kids that seem, they seem unable to sit and make it through the day in the way that I anticipate, I, I think we all did. Now I'm sure it wasn't all of us. I'm sure there were people that didn't when we were kids too, you know, but um so I see that a lot. And then I, I try to work with the parents and, and the teachers on what are ways we can break things up. So Doug would say, right, that in terms of evolutionary psychology, that that's not a natural thing for humans to be doing. Humans wouldn't have sat in a classroom for eight hours uh, ever in the course of our of our history. So I try to tell the parents because the parents are all convinced the kids are either crazy or that the kids are bad kids. And I don't think that's true for most of them, right? I think we're asking them to do a, an unnatural task. I think they're not really eating particularly well. And so that's not helping them, you know? And so then they wind up with diagnoses like ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder. So ODD. And uh, I mean, especially with things, anxieties all over the place, you know, and then you hear about uh, school shootings. We just had a guy, a parent uh, recently, this is in the news, so I'm not disclosing anything. Um, A parent went to one of our local elementary schools here in Iowa City. He was mad about his kid getting suspended and he was threatening to beat up the principal and he had a gun on his head, you know, and so they called the cops and all this stuff, you know, and so we hear about stuff in the news. Um, Social media is really, really, really tricky. If any of your listeners or yourself have not read Jonathan Haidt's work um, on social media, especially in middle school kids, it, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, I've, I, I already can see the fight that's going to happen in my family with my daughter once she gets to be middle school age. But basically, you want to keep your kids, especially your girls, off social media for as long as you can and absolutely through middle school. The suicide, wow. rate, the suicide rate has skyrocketed. With things like Instagram and and uh, and Snapchat and those kind of ones, because they assume that what they're seeing is true—the airbrushed pictures—and I mean, and they said that about magazines when we were kids, but it wasn't the same way, right? Yeah. And yeah. Heights research, interestingly, didn't show it for boys uh, as much, if 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 at all, because the boys are playing games and watching porn, you know. So it's a little different <laughs> for the boys, right. but for the girls, you know, I mean, it's it's really really terrifying. So. A lot of uh, a lot more low mood with that, um, believing that, uh, you know, the sort of low self-worth, you know, and it's uh, it's it's so hard. And so I approach it the same way, which is I'm, I'm, I'm really harping on the lifestyle things, turn off the social media, you know, get out in the community. Like I said, right, you know, an hour and a half ago or whatever we started, uh, you know, uh, the, the communities in which we live are still very nice. You know, so uh, it seems like real life on X and on Meta and all this stuff, but it's not. That's not real life. There's there are few things that make me sadder than high school kids who commit suicide. And we in this school district 
um, have been struck with a bunch in the last couple of years, there've been a bunch and mm. it, it breaks my heart because all of us who made it out of high school quickly realized that high school is not real life, you know? And uh, I always tell my high school uh, patients that you can go to your five-year reunion, but I absolutely want you to go to your 10 year and beyond reunion because what you're going to see is everyone is going to get like fat and bald and, and middle-aged and all the pretense of all the weirdness. In five years, you're just out of college. Maybe you're in grad school, but by 10 years and definitely by 20, nobody's trying to act cool anymore. You know, we're all, and, and you you see the the person that broke your heart and you uh, you talk to the, the guy that was mean to you in Spanish class and you're just you're just different people. It, it, it feels like real life. And so mm. being upset, that's one thing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, going to therapy. Absolutely. You know, eating well and sleeping well and having your group of friends, your support system. Absolutely. But something as drastic as committing suicide, it's because because you realize you, 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 you think what's happening is real and it's not. So if anything mm. keeps me up, it's it's, you know, people, people that are really getting into that who have so much potential and when it's cut short. Um, I, I think that's probably as close as I'm gonna come to something that I see more often than I than I wish I did that that keeps me awake. Right, right. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation for me. Um final question which I like to ask all my guests is there a particular word that for you sums up what being vegan is all about? I think I would say awareness, which is, which I, I think is what Jen said uh, when she was on. But when I think about, so, you know, obviously an hour and 20 minutes in, there's so much more we could talk about. But one of the things we didn't really talk about was the ethical side of things. Um, I'm, uh, I'm currently taking undergraduate philosophy classes with the idea of uh, eventually, uh, Jen and I just talked about this recently, uh, getting a, getting a PhD in philosophy and ethics and, um, you know, I, I think the the ethical piece of not just veganism, but um, really kind of, kind of any anything that we do mindlessly is uh, is really really fascinating. And like Jen, I have this tie into the Buddhist world, and I'm big into meditating. And I've I've heard um, I've heard Buddhist monks that are teachers of mine talk about how, because as an example, the Buddha didn't didn't mandate that people were vegetarians the way that in Jainism it was mandated. And one of the reasons was because the monks and nuns had to eat what they were given, you know, but um, so I've heard the monks say, well, you know, uh, we, we really can't mandate that people are vegetarian or vegan because, you know, most people when they eat meat, they aren't really thinking about being cruel to animals or killing things, you know, so we really shouldn't say that because, you know, their motivation, their karma and the objection back is, but if you're not being aware of what you're doing, if you're not really thinking about what you're doing, that in and of itself is an omission. And for me, being a truth seeker, which I've said several times, right, if we're trying to really engage with our own minds and the world around us, being aware, asking questions, being open to feedback, even if it makes us uncomfortable, from our friends and colleagues and so forth. I just think that's sort of our best way forward. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great way of framing, framing the whole conception of veganism. So thank you. 
All right, Dr. Adam Woods, thanks so much for joining us. And we close every episode by taking 30 seconds of silence for all of the suffering animals, human and non-human, who desire, as we all do, safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without interference. So I invite you to join me in 30 seconds of silence for the animals, and we'll conclude with the sound of the bell. Thank you, Dr. Woods. And thank you, Posse. See you next time. Until then, stay strong and stay true.